2: Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope. I'm Terry Aranga, here with my guest, Dr. Corin Barrett. Dr. Barrett is a naturopath who has been practicing in Orange County, California since 2003, offering integrative medical care. Dr. Barrett currently serves patients at the California Integrative Hyperbaric Clinic and Newport Integrative Health. Dr. Barrett, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Terry. Now, you're a naturopathic practitioner, correct? Why did you choose this over uh, becoming an MD?
3: That is correct. I am a naturopathic doctor. Um, I chose it because of the scope of practice. Within naturopathic medicine, it really focuses in on what I would consider the root causes of why a lot of people have uh, health concerns in their life, lacking nutrition, dietary issues, um, lifestyle issues. So I was really interested in being able to coach my patients on the types of changes that they can make that I believe will actually prevent or um, really get to the root cause of why people have a lot of concerns. So I really like this integration of... So the scope of practice and integration of the um, kind of natural nutritional supplementation dietary along with conventional medicine. So what I do is meld the two together in my practice, and I think that that gives me a very large toolbox, so to speak, from which to uh, help my patients.
2: By what you said, it kind of sounds, one could infer that conventional medicine doesn't look at root causes.
3: Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that per se in all situations, but let me give you an example of, um, say, a headache. I mean, I think if conventional medicine is excellent at um, emergency medicine. You know, I always joke with my patients, if I'm ever hit by a truck, certainly don't take me to a naturopathic doctor, take me to the emergency room. But when we're looking at more sort of chronic, long-term health conditions, if there's a way in which we can find treatment through a more natural means, I think that we can get a better long-term result than trying to deal with symptoms with medications. Let me give you an example of a headache, per, uh, for example. Um, if you have a headache on a daily basis, sure you can take uh, some type of analgesic like an aspirin or an Advil, but you're really masking your symptoms what I do in my practice is really try and look for why is the individual having the headache in the first place? You know, is there some type of food sensitivity? Is there some type of allergy? Is there, you know, some kind of hormonal imbalance? And then correcting that, do away with the need for, you know, taking a medication on a daily basis. So I wouldn't say that within... Uh, conventional or what could also be called allopathic medicine, that they're not always looking for root causes. But there's, you know, certain things that I don't think that medications always kind of address what the issue really is.
2: When you're talking about the broken bone, Mm -hmm. if you've had proper nutrition before the fact, then you will be less likely to have as fragile bones.
3: Absolutely. I mean, that's very, you know, very well-known information that a person who's in good health and has good nutrition, if there's some kind of uh, traumatic injury, that they're going to recover more readily and easily than somebody else who is malnourished or in poor health. I mean, we, we certainly see that, um, you know, in some of our individuals in our elderly population or people who have uh, diabetes, so people who are sort of in impaired health, if they do have some kind of traumatic injury, you know, diabetes are well known for having uh diabetics, you know, who have, it's been uncontrolled and they have some issues with circulation, I mean we'll definitely have non healing wounds. And in our elderly population we've seen that, you know, when they break bones, they they have a little bit harder time recovering than a younger population who might be in a more robust health.
2: So do people come to you before they are feeling unwell in order to maintain their health, or do people generally
3: come to you when they're already
2: experiencing an illness?
3: Well, having an individual come to me when they're feeling well in order to uh, practice preventative medicine is ideal. I love that. I love that when patients show up like that. Most of the time, my patients come when there's some type of problem. So they come for, you know, a specific symptom or a specific condition that they have, and then that's when, you know, we start to employ some of these therapies. But definitely preventative medicine, I think, is much better. I, th- I think it's ideal if there's a lot of things, there's a lot of conditions that we absolutely can prevent through nutrition, uh, good diet, some good basic naturopathic principles. I mean, even the World Health Organization has said that, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, many different types of cancer are all preventable through even just diet alone.
2: it really seems to me like conventional medicine pays lip service to prevention Uh, Insurance companies talk about prevention, uh, but it seems like uh, naturopathy would like uh, an individual to come before the fact and keep them healthy, whereas conventional medicine puts a Band-Aid on things or creates situations that make people perpetual patients.
3: Well, I mean, we certainly do know that with many pharmaceuticals, and, and let me just kind of preface this statement and say that I do prescribe pharmaceuticals, and so I do use them in my practice, but I try and use them very carefully. That said, um, there are many pharmaceuticals that we know cause a variety of other symptoms. So you'll certainly find patients who have gone on, you know, one pharmaceutical, experience a side effect, and then take another pharmaceutical to, you know, counteract the side effect of the first pharmaceutical. So, you know, obviously if we can get pharmaceuticals that are, um, you know, have less side effects, or if we can even find natural means of addressing some of these health issues that, um, you know, I, I think we'll have a much healthier population. Now, as far as the comment of with the health insurance companies and, you know, some of these other, uh Medical companies playing lip service to uh, to preventative medicine. You know, I I think that it will come around someday, because I mean, quite frankly, if you prevent one person from having a heart attack, that's an immense amount of cost savings for these health insurance companies, uh, you know, ultimately, potentially for our government as well, and so that I think that preventative medicine will someday become part of the standard of care for our population, um, you know, if not for the reason, you know, it's it's the right thing to do and it's good for, you know, every individual, but it's also much cheaper, so I think it's very going to be, uh, you know, the insurance companies are going to figure out, wow, we're going to save a lot of money if we can keep our population healthy.
2: What are the similarities and differences in MDs and NDs training?
3: Well, for I can tell you about my training. Um, I went to medical school and I went to a naturopathic medical school. It's a four-year full-time program, and I did a residency there after. So. Um, you know, I was in school for four plus years. Did a year-long residency. You know, somewhat similar to what a medical doctor would receive as far as hours of training in school. The residency is a little bit shorter. You know, if uh, medical doctors do choose to go into a residency for their specialty, and um, I would say the differences is are, are in the training. So, whereas a medical doctor is going to learn a lot more about surgery, emergency medicine. What naturopaths learn about is the preventative. So they learn about nutrition, they learn about supplementation, they learn about herbal medications, uh, whereas, like I said, the medical doctors learn more about um, emer- surgery and emergency medicine.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've spoken to uh, MDs who commented on how training and nutrition was relatively non-existent.
3: It's, there's very few hours currently for medical doctors in nutritional training. I have a a brother who's just now finishing up his residency um, as a medical doctor, and we were kind of sitting down and comparing notes and talking about, okay, you know, you know, what, what kind of training in nutrition did you receive? And I mean, I think it was, you know, a couple of hours during medical school. Mm. So it, you know, it's it's not a lot. I think that a lot of medical doctors are more dependent upon uh, registered dietitians to help their patients with the nutritional aspect, and that's not something that's usually integrated so much into, uh, you know, like a family practice visit. So when you're asking about sort of the differences, I think that's one of the big ones. But also to kind of point out some of the similarities are, is that uh, naturopathic doctors, now, and I do want to differentiate, there are naturopathic doctors or, you know, people who call themselves naturopaths. But licensing is a little bit different from state to state who have not attended four-year medical programs, you know, that have either done something online or have done something through, you know, a mail order catalog. It's very different. Naturopathic doctors who have attended four-year medical programs are trained as primary care doctors. So I see a lot of patients. I mean, I definitely see quite a few children on the spectrum, um, but I also have a family practice. So I have people who come into me for everything from you know high blood pressure to cholesterol issues. To I see women for gynecological care. So I do a, I do have a family practice, and um, you know see, see my patients very much as their primary care doctor.
2: How can MDs possibly respect or remediate metabolic impairments, which is an especially important topic to children with autism, without understanding
3: nutrition? Well, that's a good question. I think that, you know, when we're, t- we're going to be talking about autism specifically, we also need to kind of delineate, you know, what's considered standard of care, within the mainstream medical community and then sort of how we're looking at things as, you know, myself as a defeat autism now practitioner, the DAN practitioner, um, you know, I'm very concerned and interested in looking at these metabolic issues in children with autism. They're not readily recognized within the mainstream medical community. I mean, if you go into your... you know, your standards of practice, standards of care. I mean, the only medication or really the only, you know, treatments per se that are conventionally recognized for autism are Um and therapy, so occupational therapy, speech therapy. And, you know, there, there really isn't a whole lot else that medical, you know, that, that sort of your average – regular family practitioner or pediatrician have to offer parents with children with autism I mean it's you know it's basically we have this one medication we can refer you for services and um, you know best of luck
2: well that's where uh, looking at a new model of hope comes in so what do you think autism is and how useful do
3: you think the label
2: of autism is
3: Uh I would say that the label of autism, just to answer the the, sort of the latter part of that question first, I think the label of autism is completely useless from a medical standpoint. I think it's helpful for parents to get services. I mean, I really think that that's the only thing that it's very useful. I think it's useful for parents to find each other. You know, of, oh, you know, we we have children who, ha- you know, have these sort of similar similarities and similar challenges. Um, it's helpful for getting services through the school district, speech therapy, so on and so forth. But from a medical standpoint, I think it's completely useless. And quite frankly, I think that what we're eventually going to be moving to is seeing that, you know, autism is kind of like this waste-basket diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You know, this child exhibits X, Y, and Z symptoms. We don't really know why. You know, here is this diagnosis of autism. Um, but I think that we'll eventually find that there's many different subtypes and v- many different causes of autism, and we'll cause, call it different things.
2: All right, and we'll pick up with this thought when we come back at the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Thank you to our sponsor, medco We'll be right back.
5: com
4: Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern day renaissance man, Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within. Your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within. Broadcasts Live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now, back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: I'm here with Dr. Warren Barrett, naturopathic practitioner in California. And before the break, Dr. Barrett, you were talking about the wastebasket diagnosis. Of autism, when I asked you about how useful autism was as a label, and I thought that was a really good way of putting it, uh, parents are I feel, in my opinion, kind of pigeonholed into letting this label, this psych label from the DSM-IV uh, stick with their kids because, precisely because they're afraid of their kids losing services. So if I wanted to have my child's diagnosis moved to something more useful like um, immune dysregulation uh, or metabolic dysfunction, uh, I would have to be afraid about them losing their educational services. How do you feel about this?
3: Well, the medical treatment of autism is really a developing field. There's so much that's becoming understood, but there's still so much left that's not understood. So, you know, for parents, I mean, at this juncture, I think you sort of need to, Work with the system sort of as best you can. I mean, maintain that diagnosis of autism, you okay. know, to ensure that you do continue to get the services that your child so is that your, your childhood desperately needs. And at the same time, working with a doctor that understands, okay, you know, this doesn't mean that, you know, every child with autism is the same, which is very clearly seen in my practice. And as parents talk to each other, they start to realize, I think that there's all these different sort of subcategories of children with autism. There's the kids with gut issues. There's the kids with, as you mentioned, immune dysregulation, um, inflammation, oxidative. Stress. I mean, there's so many different reasons that I believe a child will develop the symptoms of autism. So this kind of gets back to what we were talking about before, you know, getting to this root cause versus simply treating symptoms because, I mean, you can treat the symptoms with the all but you're not going to get to the reason as to why a child has autism. So currently, you know, like I said, I think that you need parents, I do encourage them, you know, keep the diagnosis, you'll continue to get services for your child, but, you know, when we're talking amongst ourselves and talking about this child's health, we really talk about, you know, why is this occurring and looking at these different subcategories of, um, you know, the potential causes for any individual's child uh, autism. Yeah, you actually have to look at the patient, at the individual. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I have a complete health history, you know, talking about not only, you know, what has that child experienced from the day that they were born, but also what occurred in utero. So I look at the health of the parents. I look at the health of the mother during her pregnancy, labor and delivery, were there any kind of issues, you know, and then what happened from that, happened to that child from the day that they were born, antibiotic usage, maybe some possible reactions to vaccines. Is there a family history? And then from there, you know, a full physical exam and testing to determine what's appropriate for this individual child.
2: If we don't look at the individual's unique profile, then we don't know if
3: things that we're throwing at symptoms will hurt them. Absolutely. And this is true across the board for any medical condition. And this is absolutely true for children with developmental delays well.
2: Right. So we need to respect the patient with autism just as we would respect any other patient and not just dismiss uh, dismiss them on the basis of the fact that they have
3: an autism label. I completely agree. I absolutely completely agree. And, you know, sometimes I even think maybe even more so because we're talking about young lives here, you know, really little kids who have an entire life ahead of them. And so we've it makes me even sort of more motivated as a doctor. I mean, not that I don't, you know, treat all of my patients well, but when you have, a, you know, a two and a three-year-old who comes into your practice and you realize, oh gosh, you know, they have many, many years ahead of them, we really need to do something about this now, um, you know, because I think that time definitely is of the essence, so that they can also live long, full, rich lives, sort of um, and reaching the maximum of their potential. Perfect. So a two-
2: or three-year-old has their whole life ahead of them, and, but yet there are some professionals who, when a child with autism has been brought to them by their parents, the parents have been told to institutionalize them. And some of these very children have recovered from autism, lost the classification, gone on to get college degrees, etc.
3: It's I mean, it's, that's frustrating. I agree. It's it's absolutely frustrating, and it's really disheartening for the parents. And, um, you know, there's such a fabulous grassroots effort that's occurred within the uh, community of families with autism so that parents can realize, like, gosh, you know, I heard that this is it. This is sort of like a sentence for my child for the rest of their lives. And then they can they start to meet and talk to other families and get connected with a good doctor and realize, you know what, this doesn't have to be a sentence. That this can actually be a starting point where we can move forward and start to see improvements for my child.
2: Yes. Yeah. So one of the places uh, that you practice out of is California Integrative Hyperbaric Clinic, and Dr. Bradstreet also practices out of there. So let's go on a, a a tour, we walk into the building, we walk into your office, we sit down for your consult and what happens and what laboratory tests do you recommend, dot, dot, dot. Well, let me just take you sort of from
3: the very beginning. so we have a very well-trained, excellent staff at uh, CIHC, and so parents call to schedule an appointment, and they're oftentimes able to get, you know, kind of a lot of the, their questions answered as far as uh, what's going to happen during the appointment, um, you know, how does the scheduling work, how does payment work, you know, what kind of other services are available at the office, because not only do we offer consultations with, you know, myself and Dr. Bradstreet. There's also uh, Heart Chamber Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy there. They provide IV therapy. We have an excellent nurse for phlebotomy for children for getting blood draws. She's I've worked with her for over five years now, and, you know, I've seen a lot of kids, so she's seen a lot of kids, and she's excellent at what she does. Um, so we offer a lot of other services at that center as well. So the the families call, they schedule with the front desk and then they're sent via email or they can download it off the internet. A pretty extensive health survey. So this goes into what the child's eating, any kind of health issues that they've had in the past. It also goes into uh, pregnancy and birth history for that child family history, and then, you know, sort of all the nitty-gritty of sleep patterns, um, you know, what's happening with bowel movements, are there any digestive issues, so on and so forth. So the parents come in, um, they come in for a consultation, which is an hour, and then we go and and we talk. You know, we talk about the child, we talk about, you know, I always want to hear from parents, you know, what do they think happened? You know, do they have any kind of gut instinct or intuition as to, you know, what occurred in this child's life that may have have resulted in some of these symptoms of autism because, you know, obviously the parents have spent you know most of the, that child's, you know, moments on life with them and so they're going to have a lot of insight as to, you know, what's occurring. And so we go through a full health history as I've described and then from there I do a physical exam, you know, looking for some clues that might trigger, you know, something about Are there rashes or, you know, something else with the skin that might be indicative of a fungal infection? You know, do they have good muscle tone? We're looking for both gross and fine motor skills. Um, You know, anything that might trigger me to think of something else. And then I review testing that they've done already. So I wanna see test results that they've had done through their pediatrician, through a neurologist. Sometimes they've had screening for things such as Fragile X or metabolic disorders and I like to actually lay my eyes on all of those test results. And then from there, depending on how the child presents, we'll talk about testing. And I do both a standard and what's considered sort of alternative or kind of non-conventional testing. So if they haven't done all the sort of standard testing, I'll, I'll advise the parents as to how to do that. And. Um, you know, one thing that I'm always sort of conscientious of and have conversations with my uh, with the families about is, you know, cost of these things. So people who have HMO insurances, many of these tests can be done through their pediatrician through an HMO insurance and I'll just give them a list of everything that they need to have done. Go back to the pediatrician, get them run through the HMO insurance and then bring me the results. Um, for PPO insurance, it's definitely much easier to work with those. Um, oftentimes many of these tests can get covered through insurance or we can get reduced risk through special payment programs through some of the alternative labs. So like I mentioned, we do the conventional labs. Um, I'm looking for endocrine issues. I'm looking for inflammation. I'm looking for immune system dysfunction. I'm looking for nutrient levels, particularly like vitamin D, copper, and zinc. And that, we can all do all of those through the standard testing, you know, through your regular uh, lab our regular local lab. And then I do um, some what's considered sort of more alternative testing, you know, testing looking at gastrointestinal function. Do they have all the enzymes that they need to digest their food? Are um, there yeast? Is there bacteria? I do this through stool. I do this through urine. Um, some of it's through blood. We look through for things like, uh, are they able to detoxify like uh, glutathione, analyze for heavy metals and the effects of heavy metals. And so all of that will be determined sort of based on the symptoms that and the history that the family has provided. And then we also talk to parents, I also talk to parents about, you know, you know, what are you interested in looking at and where are your comfort levels? And so sometimes we'll start with, you know, kind of more basic testing and then maybe move to more advanced testing as we kind of move down the road, so to speak. And so then after that, um, we wait and get the test results back. And in the meantime, I usually have the parents start some type of treatment. So we'll talk about maybe uh, cleaning up the diet, getting rid of sugar. We might talk about a gluten-free, casein-free diet. I might start a couple basic nutritional supplements like a cod liver oil or a zinc, um, maybe some DMG, TMG. It kind of depends on how that child's presenting. And then once the test results come back in, usually takes about somewhere between two to four weeks. Um, in the meantime, I'm mailing the test results to the parents uh, while we're waiting for all of them to come back in. They come in for a return visit, tell me how the child's done since we last visited with the therapies that we started, go through the test results, and then based on those test results, uh, I make recommendations.
2: All right. So you've done some testing, and how do
3: the biomarkers correlate with treatment? So the biomarkers... Uh, sort of dictate what we're doing with treatment. So depending on what we're seeing, let's use uh, a gastrointestinal test, for example. So there's some very good testing that we can look at to find, say, yeast. I think yeast is a good example because you see certainly a lot of kids who have it. Um, The test tells me not only, you know, yes or no, does the child have these, but it also grows it out on culture and tells me exactly what strain it is. And from there, the laboratory will perform what are called sensitivities on that organism, where on the Petri dish, they sort of drop down, you know, different nutritional uh, supplements and different types of pharmaceuticals to tell what will kill it off. So those are the ones that are sensitive and then the ones that don't work are considered resistant. And then I look at this sheet and let's say we have a yeast and it's sensitive to plant tannins and to niastatin but it's resistant to golden seal and garlic and, you know, uh, diflucan. Let's say something along those lines. And so then I'll look at those test results and pick out sort of the least invasive, most safe treatments for that particular yeast, and then that's the treatment that I'll give the child.
2: Very good. More on this when we come back.
4: Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley right here on Voice America Health & Wellness.
4: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Terry.
2: We're back with Dr. Corin Barrett. Before the break, we were talking about how Uh, biomarkers from objective laboratory testing correlate with treatment. So why don't you continue with the common problems that you see in children and the treatment plan? Uh,
3: So common problems that I see in children with autism, um, very frequently there's gastrointestinal issues. I mean, I've been sort of using that as an example through our conversation and, and using that as an example because I do see that issue so often. Now, a lot of parents will ask me, you know, my child doesn't seem to have diarrhea or constipation and they're having a bowel movement on a daily basis and I think that's great, we still need to use, look at the yeast or bacteria anyway. Um, if there's been any history of antibiotic usage in that child's past or if they have any history of any irregularity to bowel movements, we definitely need to look at the gastrointestinal system. So treatments for that, once again, that's gonna be very dependent upon the markers that we see on the laboratory testing. The one thing to also kind of point out in regards to gastrointestinal issues is that it's not just an issue of overgrowth of you know the bad stuff, but usually there's an undergrowth of all the good stuff that helps our immune system, helps assimilation of our nutrients. But I very commonly also see issues with not enough digestive enzymes. Um, the pH is off, oftentimes too acidic, because oftentimes we'll see that the kids are really not eating enough vegetables and sort of alkalining. Um, food foods, lots of inflammation in the gastrointestinal system, and, you know, that can be caused from a variety of different things. It can be caused from food sensitivities, um, you know, something not exactly like celiac disease where somebody is completely wheat intolerant, but maybe... A little bit sensitive to that, and that's causing inflammation. And also, some of these bacteria, and yeast can also cause inflammation, which then develops, you know, gastrointestinal permeability or leaky gut. And then the kids get a lot of food sensitivities because if you have um, spaces or holes in between the cells in the gastrointestinal system, it allows proteins. Or larger molecules from our food to pass into the bloodstream that normally would not be able to pass, and then your immune system attacks it. So, once again, so so we see lots of kids with food allergies and food sensitivities. Um, So, and once with treating the gastrointestinal system, I'm really dependent upon the laboratory testing to know what exactly what I need to do. So is it an antifungal? Is it an antibacterial? Is it just a probiotic digestive enzyme? And then all of that will we'll be able to put it together a comprehensive plan for the GI system. There's also another issue uh, is immune dysfunction. So overactive immune systems, underactive immune systems, and once again, looking at laboratory testing, and all—and this can be done through your standard laboratory testing to figure out, you know, what is it that we need to do for the immune system and how is it that we can support it. And oftentimes getting rid of some of these opportunistic infections in the gastrointestinal system can help with the immune dysfunction as well as uh, essential fatty acids and other nutritional supplements. There's also issues with detoxification impairment, heavy metal toxicity. So with both of those, once again, I do the testing to find out, you know, is this an issue if they don't have enough glutathione or is it a sulfation issue or, you know, are there particular heavy metals that we need to be concerned about? And then once we have that information, I can talk to the parents about, you know, what are your options? you know, let's talk about the least invasive to kind of more invasive treatments and, you know, where do we think that uh, this family should start for this particular child. But I always, for detoxification, start by getting the child's own detoxification mechanisms up and running best we can. We can do this with glutathione cream. We can do this with the methyl B12 injections. We can do this with Epsom salt baths, um, making sure that they're having bowel movements on a regular basis, lots of fiber. I like to use um, some over-the-counter fiber supplements you can get at your regular grocery store, and then from there, look at you know actually doing some kind of detoxification program, either for you know pesticides, types of toxins we encounter in our environment, or and or heavy metals. There's also issues with lots of nutritional deficiencies. So sometimes it's uh, not enough protein. I mean, we've got a lot of picky eaters out there. So for families uh, where you have a child who has a very limited diet, oftentimes protein is an issue. You know, they'll eat all the carbohydrates, but they, you know, they won't eat the good quality proteins in their diet. So we'll talk about some creative ways to get those into kids. And then, like I was mentioning, lots of micronutrient deficiencies as well, B sick, magnesium. Zinc is a very, very common one. Vitamin D is also very common. So once again, based on testing, I'll start to make some recommendations for specific nutrients that we can include in this child's uh, nutritional program and start to see better responses as far as their neurological development is concerned. So I'd say that those are some of the main areas that I look at. I mean, in addition to that, inflammation, oxidative stress. Uh, I look for infections. Um, is there any been a period of time of hypoxia or decreased oxygenation in the brain, and that'll lead me to making a recommendation of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So I, I look at all of that very comprehensively.
2: So you you talked about a lot of things, and you were talking about nutrition and how uh, good nutrition will manifest in uh, better behavior. Uh, let's let's focus for a minute on the gut, which you started out with. The gut and behavior. When you remediate problems with the gut, do you notice improvement in uh, behavioral symptoms? How does the gut tie in with inflammation in the brain? And how can a child absorb? Nutrients from supplements,
3: anyway, if their gut, uh, if they have gut pathology. Great questions. Well, let's, um, you know, kind of start off with the first one. If you see issues in the gut, does that translate to symptoms, as far as like maybe neurological or developmental symptoms? Let's use a really kind of basic example. So, I've had some kids who've come into my practice who have had severe constipation. And we'll have these little kids that they're literally kind of holding their legs together and standing on their tiptoes and kind of dancing out of the room because they're afraid to have a bowel movement because historically it's really hurt. And what the parents will describe is, you know, my child gets really cranky. They'll, you know, they can't concentrate. All of their focus and energy is going into, you know, not having a bowel movement. And, um, you know, they'll be like this for two or three days. Before they actually have a bowel movement. So you can see that this would be very, uh, disruptive to their learning process of learning anything. You know, be it language or, you know, sort of, uh, their colors or whatever they're trying to engage in or interact with or learn. If there's something just as simple as having an issue with constipation, we'll definitely see some, uh, issues with cognitive development. And simply by correcting the constipation, I've seen some kids get a lot better. And so that's a very simple example. And then the examples sort of become more complex from there. But absolutely, there's an interaction between the gut and the brain. There's also sort of a well-known interaction of uh, gliadol and casomorphin peptides. So these are improperly uh, digested pr- uh, molecules created from either gluten or casein that uh, interact with the opiate receptors in the brain that will make children, you know, somewhat Kind of stoned, so to speak, and definitely impair uh, their cognitive development or their neurological development. So those are two examples that we could use tying in the gut to uh, to the gut to the neurological. What was your second question?
2: We want to talk about how uh, gut pathology can translate to inflammation in the brain and then, um, how can you absorb nutritional supplements if your gut is impaired?
3: Okay. So as far as uh, inflammation in the brain, I mean, we there's a variety of different ways that we could look at that. So if you're not... Um, you know, sort of absorbing, and this kind of ties into your second question, if you're not absorbing the antioxidants, all of the things that will sort of quelch the free radicals or quelch the um, inflammation, you'll definitely see that there's this correlation between the gut and inflammation in the brain. And then there's the example that I just gave as far as uh, the opioids. It's not inflammation exactly, but it is um, a way in which the gut and the neurological system will definitely interact. Um, As far as if the gut is impaired and how do you absorb all your nutrients, that's a really, I mean, that's definitely very concerning. And so oftentimes you do need to clean up the gut to get a child to be able to absorb their nutrients appropriately. I also, if there does seem to be a concern about absorption, we'll look at, uh, administering some of these nutritional supplements through alternative means mm-hmm. so you can do creams there's um, IVs I mean that's kind of more of an extreme example but I do a lot of uh, vitamin creams with kids so that we can get them in you can also do suppository so we do have some other options there's the methyl B12 subcutaneous injections all of these will bypass the bulk of the gastrointestinal system, so that we know that they 're getting some of the nutrients that they need, but what about their metabolic status? Is that going to allow them to absorb
2: um, to utilize nutrients for example, uh, when I had my son's b six tested, he had levels you know going through the roof. But I think
3: that's because he was wasting B6. Mm -hmm. Well, so for the nutrients and ability to use the nutrients, so there's sort of two different issues. There's the can you absorb it. So there's first got to get it in the body. That's the first issue, you know, actually taking it in the body, like taking in that B6. The second is absorbing it, and the third is the ability for utilization, and I'm concerned about all three of those things. Now, as far as the third with the uh, ability for utilization, what is often found is that maybe we need to look at a different form of the B6, so there's uh, something called There's sort of your standard B6, but there's also something called P5P or peroxyl uh, 5-phosphate, which is an activated form of B6. Or, for example, with the B12, you have your uh, cyanocobalamin, which is kind of your regular uh, B12, versus your methylcobalamin, which is more of an activated or methylated form of B12. So sometimes what we need to do is switch forms of nutrients and then of, of the particular nutrient, and then the children are able to utilize them appropriately. There's also a concept of uh, kind of backloading, so to speak, that if you have a pathway that's impaired, that oftentimes you can give enough of a nutrient to kind of push it through, so to speak. So that's another concept. And then for some of these things, we need to really look into it and think, okay, is there maybe a piece that we're missing? You know, is it maybe that this child needs magnesium enabled for them to enable them to utilize their B6. So we want to look at all of that together.
2: Right. Not the kind of info you get at your standard pediatrician's office. It's impossible
3: to do in a five-minute visit. (laughs) And, I mean, that's really why, you know, my initial consultation is an hour and return consultations are a half an hour.
2: Yeah, but as we discussed, they haven't been trained in it anyway. So we will talk more about this when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back with Dr. Corin Barrett. Dad, uh, can I ask you something? Sure. There's
4: this girl I kinda like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people, grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh Ugh. No! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1 888 200 4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Oranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We're back with Dr. Corin Barrett, who serves patients at the California Integrative Hyperbaric Clinic and also Newport Integrative Health. Her website is www.inaturalmedicine.com. Dot com. And, again, the uh, the clinic in Irvine, California, California Integrative Hyperbaric Clinic, is a very, very pleasant place, very uh, child-friendly uh, facility. And uh, Dr. Barrett is certainly right. Uh, they have a world-class phlebotomist there, Shannon, who's wonderful with the kids. Before we went on break, Dr. Barrett, we were talking about different things that you look at. And one of the things you mentioned was glutathione. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bet you probably do uh, testing for MTHFR as well. And why is it important to know about glutathione and MTHFR um, before kids get stuff, uh, before people try to give kids stuff, I, I'd like to say, like fluoride or Tylenol?
3: Well, I mean, there's a very well sort of known relationship between uh, glutathione and Tylenol. And Tylenol will actually suppress glutathione levels. And I think that, um, well, let's just kind of back up for a second. Glutathione is in every person's body. So we all have it. And it's responsible for, it's one of our main mechanisms of detoxification. Um, We've seen that many children who are on the autism spectrum, have lower levels of glutathione. And there's a theory that um, some kids who have shown some adverse reactions to vaccines, part of this might be due to the fact that Tylenol suppresses glutathione levels. Um, And then if you pre-medicate with Tylenol or give a child Tylenol after a vaccine, that might further any uh, sort of deleterious effects that that child might have from that vaccine. So knowing a child's glutathione status, I actually think, is really important, not only from sort of a therapeutic uh, standpoint, but also to know, you know, sort of what's this interaction going to be with Tylenol. And, in fact, you know, for most kids, I don't recommend Tylenol. I recommend some other type of uh, fever reducer or analgesic. Um, MTHFR is really important to know about. So it stands for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase and it tells about a person's ability for methylation. So methylation is very important for producing all of our brain chemicals. Serotonin, all of the neurotransmitters uh, require methylation to become effective. So sometimes I'll even see uh, decreased MTHFR in people who have depression. It also is going to tell me children who are going to respond well to the methyl B12 little subcutaneous injections and once again it's a Major way of detoxifying. So, you know, you definitely want to know the status of both of these things. And it's interesting, sort of, uh, you mentioned fluoride before. I think that fluoride. We need to be very cautious with, Um, you know. It can be for some children. I think a toxic compound. Now, if I always joke with my patients, you know, you know, when you look at your periodic chart that you have hanging in your bedroom, uh, that you'll see that fluoride is in a category of something called halide ions. So, halide ions. It's uh, fluoride chloride, so chlorine, bromide, bromide is used as a desiccant in a lot of baked goods or flours, share the same column with iodine. And so we're seeing increasing issues with uh, thyroid in not only our general population but also children on the spectrum. And it might have something to do with exposure to things like fluoride, bromide, and chloride and it displacing iodine. We know that iodine is the backbone of our thyroid molecules. T3 has three iodine molecules. T4 has four iodine molecules. And so those are some things that, you know, we need to be careful with in this patient population.
2: right, and just this... uh Some cautionary words of advice since it's summer and the kids could be out swimming is that um, if your child's going to be swimming in a chlorinated pool, you might want to think about using something like Epsom salt baths or Epsom salt cream, magnesium sulfate
3: cream. And uh, I think
2: also taurine was mentioned.
3: Mm -hmm. And I oftentimes recommend that, you know, if possible, you know, have kids swimming in a saltwater pool. Um, If that's not available, I'll even have parents do a very, very dilute solution of iodine in a spray bottle and spray their kids down after they get out of the chlorine pool. Now, you just need to do it very dilute because otherwise uh, the iodine will stain. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Why don't you tell us about some success stories where your interventions brought kids on the spectrum forward?
3: Well, I'll I'll, I'll say that I feel very um, sort of fortunate and blessed that I have several recovered kids in my practice um, through a variety of, you know, not only my efforts, but the parents' absolutely heroic efforts in getting their kids recovered. So, I mean, this is definitely, you know, has taken... I absolutely uh, sort of applaud the parents' effort in uh, getting their children better. But we've, once again, it's basically employing whatever the testing and through clinical evaluation requires. So like I said, I have a, a couple kids that are recovered and I feel very fortunate for that. Um, and there's also sort of the smaller victories as well. You know, I'll, I'll tell the story, I had a one-child, who was uh, kind of a little bit of an older child, fairly severely autistic, and um, seemed quite unhappy. Was you know kind of hurting herself, pinching, a lot of bruising. We started some therapies, and the mom came back and she said, "You know what? My child's still autistic, and she's still nonverbal, but she's happy." She was smiling all the time, and you know, in such a better mood because we had corrected issues like the gastrointestinal dysfunction. We had helped her sleep, um, had helped with detoxification. So it's much of it can also be. Not only are we looking for you know the the, the prize of recovery, but we're also looking for the smaller victories along the way of right. improvement in quality of life for these kids. Right. So, yeah, so a lot of, you know, a lot of really great success stories in a variety of different areas, improving nutrition, improving gastrointestinal dysfunction, um, and detoxifying. We went to a uh, whole foods, uh, juiced, uh, blended
2: uh, diet insofar as the produce was concerned instead of getting organic pureed produce or bottled organic juices, Mm -hmm. we started doing it all from scratch, juicing, blending, and pureeing, and that seemed to make a big difference um, in
3: our son's level of happiness. You know, and there's so many things that parents can just get started on their own without even consulting a doctor. You know, getting a lot of sugars, preservatives, um, colorants, I mean, so many simple things we can do with nutrition that make a big difference not only for your child with autism, but for the entire family. I mean, I really recommend this as a lifestyle change for families versus, you know, considering it just treatment for that child with autism. Getting rid of the chemicals out of the home, making a really nice, clean environment Because there's so many chemicals in our environment that we know that they interact with our neurological system. Mm -hmm. We know that they interact with our endocrine system. So, you know, as best as a family can, you know, as finances allow, moving towards, you know, clean products in the household. They're readily available. You know, I can—I even buy mine over at Target. They have some of their own brands. Um, Also, you know, as best you can, moving to an organic diet. I think the most important things to have organic are the um, animal products, so like meat products, because so many of the fat-containing foods will sort of uh, bioaccumulate uh, any kind of growth hormone or pesticide that that animal was exposed to when it was alive. And then there's um, a really great website. It's called the Environmental Working Group, ewg.org, and they have a uh, pocket uh printout that you can get of the produce that's most important to buy organic because it's the most contaminated versus other produce you can buy conventionally because it's lesser contaminated and so parents can really make some choices you know based on economics for their family um, as to some areas where they can kind of clean up their household so that's really one of the first things I recommend for families
2: Well Dr. Barrett thank you so much for all of this really practical advice Well Terry thanks so much for having me
3: to our listeners,
2: my guests next week will be Dr. Roy Leonardi and Lori McElwain from the National Autism Association. And we'll be talking again about the issue of abuse, seclusion, and restraint in schools. This is a very serious safety issue. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autism1.org. Again, Dr. Barrett's website is www.inaturalmedicine.com and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.